Shall we stand a fable for the reading of God's word? This morning's reading comes to us from Exodus, the 20th chapter, verses 1 to 17, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to Yahweh your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. May God open our hearts and eyes to receive and obey this, his word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before the, the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you give us your written word, that we might hear it, understand it, and apply it. Father, we could only do such by the power of your spirit, who grants us right understanding, grants us conviction, grants us the grace we need to carry it out. In Christ's name we thank you. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're finally starting the series on the law. It's actually going to be an 11-part series, though there are 10 commandments, and that's because we need to have a working framework or understanding of the law. There are many different understandings out there, having been a young man in a very weak uh, Christian church when I first, God first saved me at age 23, 
the church had no concept of the law. And so you can only imagine I had no concept of the law. I didn't know what to do with it, didn't know what, was, what carried forward, what, what didn't carry forward, any of that stuff. And it left me for years in confusion. So I want to make sure before we move on to the law that we have some understanding of it. The title of today's message is, Do You Love the Law of God? And as you take a look, it's in the sermon. I've got the sermon outline as an insert. And the reason I do is because I'm hoping that you'll tuck this into your Bible so that for the remaining 10 sermons, you will have this as a reference if you're not familiar or if you're where I was when I, was first, when I first became a believer and didn't know what to do with the law. What law are you speaking of? You can see as on, the, on the document there, on the insert, it says the takeaway is when you rightly understand the law, its function, and its fulfillment, you can't help but love God's law. Some of us struggle with sin, and some of the reason we struggle with sin is because we don't understand the law. We don't have a love for the law that helps aid us. God uses that to allow us to be convicted by our love that we do not transgress and therefore demonstrate a lack of love to our Savior. So we need the knowledge. And I think really what one of the, the, the purposes for going over the, the passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, 14 to 18 today, whether it was PJ teaching the law and gospel or us actually praying it, to see the connection that knowledge has in making sure that we do not become lawless. We need knowledge of the law. We need knowledge of Jesus Christ and his interaction with the law. And in doing so, we prevent ourselves becoming lawless, unstable. Who wants an unstable relationship, whether it be in a marriage or with your friends or your family or with God himself? We need to be grown up. I will tell you that a number of years I was in, uh, and maybe you guys have heard of this term, sinker-sensitive church. That's where you dumb down the gospel so that it's, it's able to be understood by the person who just came in off the streets. Well, I think that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't think we have any business dumbing down anything. In fact, I'm hoping that we leave here with greater knowledge so that we leave here going, well, this makes sense. I've always wondered about this or that as it relates to the law. Well, I thought I would start off by drawing us into a scenario. It's, this is a story, just a little three-paragraph story, by a missionary wife, and her lack of knowledge got her into a place she wished she wouldn't have been. And it's the knowledge of the cultural norms or cultural laws of this new place she went to as a, as a missionary. Listen to this. When we moved to the Philippines in 2002 to work as missionaries among a minority group, I soon found a whole neighborhood of 11,000 ethnic minorities just down the road. She's actually excited about this to go engage this group of people. This is the heart of a missionary. They were united in their religion with this distinct way of life. It is not Christian religion. Many of them sold wares at the marketplace nearby. I visited their booths daily to practice language and build friendships. One of my vendor friends was pregnant. After she gave birth, I asked her friends if I could come visit 
to see her baby. They were surprised, but they welcomed me. This was the first of many visits inside the compound where they lived. On the first visit, I broke all kinds of rules that I didn't even know existed. My friends insisted that I should keep my sandals on inside the house, so I did. They brought me the baby dressed in pink and lace. I ooed and awed and kissed the baby and said how beautiful she was. They told me her name. After they repeated it several times, I asked them to write it down for me. They searched the entire house, a three-story concrete building housing a dozen families, and could not find a single pencil. Later, as I recounted the experience with my language tutor, I discovered all the ways I had misstepped. Shoes must, excuse me, shoes must always be removed. They, out of graciousness, said, oh, no, leave them on, but it was a disrespect in their culture. Asking them to write her name shamed them by exposing the fu their functional illiteracy. No one knew how to write. No one had a pencil. They had no writing instruments. One must never, this one's very different from us, one must never kiss a baby because it could transmit germs. I get that at the beginning. How does someone not kiss a child? I don't get that, but I, okay. Instead of a kiss, I should have, listen to this, sucked in my breath quickly near her face. That's what they would do. You get close to the child, you act like you'd kiss it, and you do that. Why? But my biggest mistake came as a shock. Babies must never be praised. This may attract the attention of demonic spirits. Instead, I should have expressed how ugly the baby was. I mean, we got to talk about a different culture. Clearly, I had a lot to learn. So we could see that her lack of knowledge in this culture was a problem. It was a problem that re resulted by, on her behalf as a personal offense on the family. Now, the family was understanding. She was new. She meant well. But you could also see the lack of knowledge in the religion itself. You remember the part about the demonic spirits, didn't want to bring attention by saying something beautiful. Whatever we fear most is what we worship. It has control over us. Theirs was a, a religion of idolatry. They gave the greatest power, at least the acknowledgement of power, to Satan and his demonic spirits. Something easily overlooked as just superstition, but it is more than that. It is a form of idolatry. So we can see that it could be as, as, as innocent as a, a personal offense if we lack knowledge or as serious as an error of theology that is so gross that it, you end up worshiping a pagan god. Well, today we're going to take a look and we're going to deal with that issue of knowledge. And we're going to get to know the law and how it's used. And if you look at your handout, you'll see I want to go over the three bullet points. First, we have the origin of the moral law. I'm going after one component there, the, the origin of the moral law. And then under Roman numeral two, the function of the threefold law given by God, and this is what's critical, at Mount Sinai. 
sometimes referred to as the Sinai law, it's the Mosaic law. It's that covenant that God in, in, entered into with mankind. He initiated at Mount Sinai. And then three, the final one for us, the one we know most, most readily because we, are, we live on this side of the resurrection of Christ, the, film, the fulfillment of the threefold law by Christ, not in the Mosaic covenant, but in the covenant of grace. We need to understand where we are in the Bible and what covenant we're in so we don't confuse what happens in that covenant and pull it into our covenant thinking that it's always a one-for-one. So we have to understand that. So let's take a look at the origin of the moral law. We see there under point A that we were not created as morally or moral blank slates. I uh, have a minor in deviant psychology. Go figure why I became a police officer. I have a minor in deviant psychology that helps me with as a pastor with sin. It helps me personally understand my own bent for sin. But I can tell you this, psychology is humanistic. That means that psychology looks at the problem strictly based on its own understanding of mankind without, and they do this on purpose, any influence of an understanding of God. That's why it's called humanistic. If, so psychology can never answer the why question as it relates to motive for what we do, sin, those kind of things. It can answer patterns of observation, and it does quite well, and we thank it for it. But it cannot answer the why questions that we seek. So it says, psychology says, every human being is a blank slate and that we develop morals, we're capable of morality, but we develop them through the experiences we have and the decisions we make. It's something that is generated by us. That is not a biblical understanding. In fact, that is incredibly opposite of what the Bible says. That seems to say that the, the heart starts off passive and experiences in our own decisions make or, or, or shape what the heart does and feel. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. The heart is active. It is utterly wicked. Who can know it? Since our fallen state, the heart seeks after autonomy as what was sought after by Adam and Eve in the garden. So we know that this, that this is a wrong understanding that we, we, have, we start off as, as creatures human beings that have more, uh, a blank slate, morally speaking. No, we turn to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and we, we see it grounded all the way in the first book of the Bible. In the first chapter of the Bible, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, we were created, and we'll talk about this later on in our study of the individual uh, Ten Commandments, but the word there, it says this, so God created man in his own image. 
That's a, that's a translation choice. That's a translation decision. I agree with the, the, the theologians and the, those linguists that see that the pronoun that should be used there that is most helpful for us to understand is the pronoun not in, but the pronoun as, because this is a statement of identity. In the Bible, when you study the language of Hebrew, when identity is used, the pronoun as is the most applicable for understanding what is trying to be communicated from the Hebrew into the English. So listen to this, verse 27. So God created man as his own image. I'm not saying in is wrong. I'm saying as is more descriptive. Think about this. The invisible God of the universe creates mankind, humankind, to image him physically in a physical world. Oh, so Nick, you're saying that God looks like you physically. No. I'm saying through our physicalness, who we are, we manifest who God is. We were created as his image bearers. So what is it? What is one of the things, one of the primary things that we image? We image the righteousness of our God. In fact, when first created, when we were placed, when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, they were placed in the garden in a state of complete righteousness, able to sin, not having sinned yet. So when he first creates and places mankind in the garden, the place without sin where God dwells, his throne is located here on earth, man was in the state of righteousness perfectly imaging God. So the question begs to be answered. We have no information on any revelation given to mankind how to be righteous. In other words, what is it? What do, what do we know? What are we given as an indicator? Oh, that's righteousness. That's unrighteousness. Paul, fortunately, gives us that. If you'll see on your outline, we move to point B under the origin of the moral law. Our conscious bears witness to the moral law. I need if you, to ask you, I don't normally do this because I don't like to, to send you guys flying all over the Bible, but we do need to turn to Romans 2, 12 through 16 so that I can show you this quite clearly and not stumble over my recall of this passage. This is Romans 2, 12 through 16. Our conscience bears witness to the moral law written on our hearts. This is what it says, Romans 2, 12. For all those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law, this is key, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. 
by Christ Jesus. We can see here what Paul is talking about by using a metaphor. This is nothing, but I, I got to be careful not to say nothing. I want to make sure you don't think of, that you don't think your pastor is trying to tell you that if you were to cut open your heart, they would find the Ten Commandments written on your heart. That's not what I'm saying. This is a metaphor. This is trying to create an image or an understanding. What Paul is saying that those who do not have the law, he's talking about Gentiles because Gentiles were never given the Mosaic law. The Jews were. Gentiles are non-Jews. So he's pointing this out. That's why this, this Mount Sinai, Sinai covenant is going to play such an important part here. But those of, I wasn't born a Jew. I don't know how many of you were. And yet you knew right from wrong. This picture of having the law written on our hearts that Paul is referring to way back in the beginning. It's a part of our, he calls it our nature. It's part of our, you might say it this way, our DNA. It is baked into who we are. This ability to, to understand right and wrong Maybe it would be more helpful if I share it with you as this way. It's a standard. We know right and wrong. And you go, well, well, try and kill me. I'll fight you back. I know right and wrong. You got no business trying to kill me. I can do the same to you and you'll fend me off. You inherently, by way of how God has made you, in a, by making you in such a way that you have a standard of righteousness. He gave it to Adam and Eve to know so they would not, now they were going to get more revelation as they experienced life, but they would not fall into sin. They had this standard working in their hearts. And so we go, oh, okay, I've got an, an idea of what's going on here. The moral law from the beginning is always part of every human being. Correct. Okay, let's move down. Let's move forward, you might say, in time and move to where we are in Exodus chapter 20. The function of the threefold law given by God at Mount Sinai. Now take a look at this. You could draw lines. I almost think now as I'm looking at this, it might have been helpful for you to see lines. There's, there's three columns going on here. You'll see that it says in the first column to the left, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And then each column has something, the, the column in the middle and the column to the right of that, all the way to the right side of the page, interact with each one of those categories underneath that column. So let's look at the moral law. The moral law. It is the image-bearing component. It's what I just described. God gave it to us as a standard so that we would know what it means to be righteous and what, it, what not to do and, fail and, and fall into unrighteousness. It's status, you might say at the very end there. It's ever-binding is the way that theologians like to talk about it. The moral law is always the moral law. It will always be the moral law. It is always active in who we are and, and what society or culture we're in. We are moral creatures that God has called to express that morality in obedience. That's, we will always be that. You can never leave that. Well, now let's take a look at what's happening at Mount Sinai. Well, at Mount Sinai, up until Mount Sinai, 
We had originally, we had Adam and Eve. We move forward. Human beings keep cycling into sin. And finally says, and, and God says in chapter 12, I'm picking Abraham. He called him Abram at that time. That was his name. I'm picking him out of the nations. I'm, I'm starting with him. I'm making a nation. And this nation, I promise, I will use to bless all the other nations in their knowledge of who I am as their God. So he starts with Abraham. And now we are at Mount Sinai. This huge family of over a million people are making the trek out of Egypt, that God has redeemed them out of the slavery there. They come to Mount Sinai because he is now moving them from a mindset and, a, and an actual structure of a family-like structure into an understanding by way of a covenant. So it's more than just an understanding. Each party is agreeing to do something. There, this, this family is now going to enter into a covenant with Yahweh to be that nation that he promised he was going to build up so that they will be the blessing to all the other nations. I'm not going to try and save all the other nations at one time. I'm picking out one nation to, be the, to, to reflect who I am, my righteousness, to be proper image bearers and demonstrate to the rest of the world how different, unique, and holy I am and their need for me. That's, the, that's where we are in time with this Mount Sinai covenant. So, of course, they need more revelation from God. They meet, need God to speak forth. We don't know how to be a nation. How do you want us to interact with each other? How do you want us to act, interact with you as a nation, not just a person? So we see God reveals the second component. Not only is there the moral law that carries on no matter what, there's the second component of the civil law. And as you look on your handout, you see that what I refer to as community relations. How do I, how do I relate in a community to my other community members of this covenant community? That's what he's going to deal with in giving the law. Here's key. Look at the third column there. It says binding and underlying principles. What I'm telling you is that what is tied to the civil and the ceremonial, how the nation of Israel is to interact with each other and how they're in to interact with God does not carry forward to us. This is for specifically for them in this epoch of time, in this covenant. So you have to be careful here. Notice under civil law, I've got listed here, the theologians like to say that this binding principle is now binding an underlying principle. You don't have to wear shirts that are only made out of cotton. You can have cotton and you can have a synthetic be a thread now that you wear and it's not seen as being unclean or, uh, or wrong. Before in this Sinai covenant, I was trying to show everybody else through this nation that you're distinctly different and so I didn't allow that. The foods, I told you they were clean and unclean foods. Those foods, according to the New Testament, are all now clean. Because before I was using that to show the people, the other nations, this is a different nation. They have foods that make them unclean. They have clothing that is improper. They have ways of doing things that if they have certain things happen to them, they have to be clean and cleansed in order to come into the presence of the rest of the community, let alone the presence of God. All of that, 
only carries through the civil interaction. What carries through are the principles. It's not a one-for-one. I'm allowed to wear the shirt I'm, I'm wearing before you right now. That is not completely just one. I don't think it is. Oh, my wife says it might be. All cotton. There you go. I, it, it is all cotton. It's not two different types of uh, materials. Do you start to see? Because there are ramifications. If you think, if you get this wrong concerning the law, and you think that the civil interaction, the laws that interact, that tell the, the Israelites how they interact with one another, carry through on a one-for-one, one, you're going to bump into something called theonomy. Theonomy is something that is making a rise again in this country, in Christianity. And theonomy says there is a one-for-one for, one for the Old Testament and how we interact in our societies. The civil law is sometimes referred to as the judicial law, how the courts interact with us, how, how all of the governance interacts as far as that goes. In fact, I thought I would read to you a quote. This is from an article named, called Theonomy Primer. It's, in other, the word primer gives you the idea. It's, it's teaching you about theonomy. It's, a, it's the starting level, the elementary level. What is it and how does it work? It was written by Tom Hicks, senior pastor of First Baptist Church, of Clinton, Louisiana. He happens to be a Reformed Baptist. He happens to teach at my seminary. That's one of the reasons why I follow Tom Hicks. He writes this in this article. Dominionism is a component of theonomy. Theonomy, again, believes that everything that all the interactions from the Old Testament covenant or the Mosaic covenant are, are, should be in place today. Listen to what he says in regards to, he's quoting, uh, he's talking about dominionism and he's going he's gonna to quote one of the current uh, facilitators of theonomy. So let's listen to this. Dominionism, dominionism is closely connected to Christian reconstruction. It's an, it's an older term than what you hear today. Which Gribben, he's talking about uh, Crawford Gribben, a professor at Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland, defines as, and now I'm quoting him, this Gribben gentleman, this, this professor, the belief developed in the 1960s that the post-millennial coming of Christ will be preceded by the establishment of the godly rule on earth. Continues, this godly rule will be marked by an unprecedented revival of Christianity and the international adoption of, this is key, mosaic, judicial, and penal codes. They believe that the civil law is brought, of the, that the Israelites had to, to uh, hold to, and the penalties for failing to observe the civil law, all the penal codes, are brought in today's community. And the reason I want to share that with you is because we have some people that have been exposed to this by who I believe are very godly men, but I think they've got it wrong. And I want to make sure that as your pastor, you hear some of the contemporary issues we're facing. I think we need to identify this, and we need to make sure that we don't fall into this misunderstanding. The church, we're in the church age. We are no longer in the national nationalism of the covenant community of the nation of Israel. God has moved from that nation. It produced the one who would bring all blessings, Jesus Christ, the Savior himself. The nation failed miserably to follow God. 
but the nation under God's sovereignty produced his son who would save us. The nation was supposed to be the perfect Adam as the second Adam, and it failed. And God sent the perfect Adam, his own son, is what he talks about in Romans. So we understand we're not in the age of nationalistic Israel being that which brings forth blessing and salvation to the rest of the world. We're in the age of the church. The church, we're told, the whole book of Revelation tells us, will be persecuted over and over and over again. And it's through persecution that many come to know who we are. Do you know why? Because if you come to persecute me and I'm not a real Christian, I'll fold like a cheap book and I'll shut the covers and I'll move away because I don't want persecution. I don't want to feel pain and suffering. That God uses the, the persecution on the church, that's today's institution he's working through, to show the beauty of who we are in our righteousness when we respond in love rather than responding in hate to those that wrong us. All right, we will deal more with theonomy in a later Sunday school. I just wanted to get that out. There's your little plug to come to Sunday school and hear the differences and see. Some of you may never even realize this is an up-and-coming thing in our Christian community. You need to know enough to say, uh, that sounds wrong. Like that, you, you, you've actually taken something that was tied to the Jews, and you're bringing it in, and you're tying it to us today. All right, let's continue on. It says, ceremonial law. This is the community and its relations to God. This is non-binding. We do not sacrifice animals because the Adam himself, the, the perfect Adam, Jesus Christ, died in our stead. All of the sacrificial system pointed to what Christ would do. Once he accomplished it, door shut, case closed, he's the Messiah, nobody else is the Messiah. You can't have that, any of the false... Uh, uh, Religions that come and say, hey, I got an epiphany from this. This angel came and visited me. We should immediately say, wrong-o, can't happen. This is a closed canon. You can't be doing this stuff. When we understand the law, we shut down the, the possibility of lawlessness creeping in, wrong theology creeping in. So let's take a look at now this, this Sinai covenant under point A. What is the law, the giving of the moral law? And, and this actually carries through from, from chapter uh, 20 all the way up to 24. You'll see more laws included in there. What is it? it, is the, it's the, it stipulates, all of these laws stipulate the conditions of the covenant. When we get to chapter 24, you're going to find out, Moses, it says Moses tells them everything that the Lord has told them be, uh, up to this point concerning the laws, the stipulations. And what do they say? Oh, we got that. We want to enter into covenant with Yahweh. We've seen his power. He defeated the uh, Egyptians. They're the strongest ones around. They were the superpower on the block. He destroyed them. He rescued us. We're ready to enter into that covenant. The law at this juncture in time is a stipulation to the covenant. This is what you're agreeing to do, in other words. God is saying, this is what I expect of you in this covenant. Will you do it? And they say, yes. What else is it? It governs the lives of the people, the covenant people, that is. Oftentimes you'll hear theologians refer to it as a rule of law. Well, we recognize today that the moral law stands as a rule of law because it's ever binding. It never goes away. 
we want to be righteous. But the law as it relates to the civil law is a principled law. We take the principle of it and we apply it to our lives. It's not a one for one. And then finally, see, it reveals the Israelites' need for a savior. The Israelites, and if I could read to you chapter 24, the whole thing, you'd sit there and get a sense of, man, they're ready to go. I'm ready to be a part of this, com- this covenant. I'm ready to stand under the power of, of Yahweh, and I'm ready to obey all the way up to the point where I want to, uh, to uh, raise up a calf and worship a calf while Moses is away on, on, the, on Mount Sinai. It doesn't even last the book of Exodus. So the law is doing what it's supposed to do. The law is showing them, you ain't got it on your own. There is no way any of us in here can earn our way to heaven because each of us will break the laws of righteousness, the laws that demonstrate righteousness, and we will be in a a relationship that is one of damnation, one that is expectant of God's punishment on us. Thus, the law points to, I need something outside of my ability. I need someone outside of my ability to be righteous. I need a foreign righteousness. I need a righteousness from someone else in order to be reconciled back to God. And ultimately, the, the nation would learn that person would be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They don't know this. They just know, and therefore, their belief that God is going to create a Savior, that God is going to, when I say create, let me word it this way, he's going to have a Savior show up, put it that way. Jesus Christ is not a created being in a sense like he never was. He always is. His essence is the same with God the Father. His function is different. His essence is the same. He was never created. We know he took on flesh, but that doesn't make him created in a sense of essence. So we know that the Jews back in their day, as long as they believed that one day God would provide a Savior, they were saved. They trusted in what God said up to that point. They didn't know more. They didn't know it would be the Son of God. They certainly didn't know his name would be Jesus. But they, if they trusted, then they were saved. Finally, let's look at this, point number three. The fulfillment of the threefold law by Christ in the covenant of grace. I've listed there Jesus' mission, part one and part two. It really, under part one, I really don't need to get to uh, Matthew 18. I was going to read 17 and 18, and I ended up documented on there only verse 18. It's 17 that's the critical, the crux of this. Who is Jesus? What has, he done? what has he come to do? Didn't he get rid of the law? That's what I was told in a liberal church. We don't have any laws in this church. That's so damning. That's, that, that, that's so restricting. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a lawman. I'm a police officer. Laws seem to make things work really well. What do you mean we don't have laws? We have no laws that we need to follow as Christians? No, what they misunderstood is we don't have laws as a means to get to God. We don't earn our salvation by laws. We live out the law as a means of living out the righteousness God always intended and is still using to show people how different we are and who our God is. Oh, let's see what Jesus said, because my old church wouldn't have ever read this verse and understood it. In verse Matthew 18 or 17, it says this. Jesus is, this is Jesus. I'm always amazed by this. The chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is giving all of the reference to the Old Testament moral law. What do you mean the moral law is gone? You got the, the Savior keep preaching on it. The moral law isn't gone. It didn't, it, it's not abrogated. He says this, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he's speaking of the Old Testament, as a whole and what they pointed to, they pointed to him as a Savior. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills every aspect, the threefold. He fulfills the moral law. He never falls to sin. There is no other Savior for mankind because he's the only one that lived perfectly righteous. If you think Jesus sinned, you have not a Savior that can save you. You're in a pitiable state, and that's a terrible theology. I, I hope that no one has ever heard that from a pulpit. Two, we have the civil law. Jesus perfectly acted and interacted, never broke any of the civil law that was required of the Old Testament Jews. Jesus is on the crux, living in the Old Testament. His death represents the start of the New Testament, the, the beginning, the confirmation of the, the covenant of grace, a new covenant. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all ceremonial law, all of the sacrificial law, everything pointed to him. He was the sacrifice, willing to be sacrificed for us. So Jesus perfectly fulfills the law. But that's not it at all. That, that shows that he is the Savior. You and I still have a problem. Our sins have to be paid for. He's got to die the death we were supposed to die. And then he has to rise to show his power over that death and that he is, in fact, king over death, sin, death, and all that is associated with it. We read in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. If you'd like to turn there, please do so. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. I'll buy you time to get there because I'm trying to get there. Galatians 3, 10 to 14 says this, and I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing, and I'm just going to get on to one point, and then we'll go from there. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus Christ became a curse. Jesus Christ willingly, he didn't, he wasn't forced. He tells us over and over, particularly in the, in the Gospel of John, that I do what I do willingly. No one compels me to do it. He, he willingly is crucified, hung from a tree in our stead that we might know eternal life if we repent of our sin and we believe 
in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the one who paid for our sins. That's what we need to believe. So we have this, my, my, my sermon title is, Do You Love the Law of God? I hope you have a better understanding of it. If you do not, please come see me during our time of fellowship when we break bread and eat lunch together following this immediately after this sermon. Come. If I've misstated, if you didn't follow, if I got off tangent, come. It's so important because if you understand this, if you know this to the degree that it is taught in the Bible and is biblical, and it is, then you will have a better appreciation. You can speak as David, and we're going to end here. David did in Psalm 119, 97 through 104. This is the king of Israel, a human being who represents the coming king of Israel, who, will be, who is the king overall, not just Israel, Jesus Christ. He says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The application for today is to know and comprehend the law of God and grow in appreciation that Christ paid the curse of breaking the law by dying on a, on a tree for us. He demonstrated his power over that death by rising from the grave. We now live out the law in our lives, the moral law, as a means of being what we always were created to be, image bearers, bearing his image of righteousness to a lost and fallen kingdom of darkness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We could do none of this without the grace of your, of your spirit that you make possible for us. We come to you each and every day realizing that the law cannot even this day be accomplished without your grace applied in our lives daily. If left to our own and left trying to do it by our own bootstrap theology, I can do it. We will fail over and over again. And thus, it's a beautiful picture that even today we still depend on you. We still worship you. We still cry out to you as our God, our Savior, the one who loves us. And oh, we ask that you would have us more and more comprehend the law, that we might more and more understand and be like David and be able to say, oh, how I love your law. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.